Please turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 as we're going through the book of Hebrews. How many of you guys are, would say you're enjoying the weather? All right. How many of you are like bold enough to say it's just too hot for me? All right. All you got to do is wait eight weeks and it's going to be snowing again. So <laughs> I'm enjoying the heat. It feels good. It was so cold through May. I was like, I forgot what it's like to sweat. This is great to have a little bit of heat, but it's probably too much information, right? So, so let's pray and get into the word. God, we do thank you for the change of seasons and to have some warm weather. And we thank you for the truth in, in the book of Hebrews about who you are, Jesus, and all that you've done for us, that you've entered into the most holy place at the throne room of the Father and been the sacrifice, the mediator for our sin. We pray that we would know you more, Jesus, that we would grow in the knowledge of you. Father, we also recognize that life is difficult. It's challenging and, and confusing. And I, I pray that you would provide your comfort and your peace to us tonight. And Jesus, we're here to meet with you. And as the, the church is decorated for VBS, we just pray that you would really continue to bless Vacation Bible School and, and refresh everybody who's serving as it's the middle of the week and, and just give them strength to, to finish out the last couple days. And so we love you. We look forward to hearing from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 9 is a greater tabernacle. We're going to see Jesus as our high priest entering into the Holy of Holies to be the sacrifice for our sin. You might be asking the question, well, what is tabernacle? What does that mean? I, I don't understand what that means. And we'll discover that in the first few verses of, of chapter 9. One of the things that we find in the book of Hebrews is that there's repetition that takes place. It's been said that repetition is the mother of all teachers. Parents, think about how many times you repeat yourself to your kids, right? Look both ways before you cross the street. What kid doesn't know look both ways before you cross the street? You, you continually repeat yourself, repeat yourself. And in Hebrews 8 and 9, they're best studied together, there's this repeating theme of Jesus being our high priest. Greater than the old covenant greater than the sacrificial system. These group of believers, these Hebrew believers, they were in danger of going back under the old covenant, getting their eyes off of Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews is making much of Christ. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 9. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. So the first covenant did have divine service for the priests to do, and the earthly sanctuary being the tabernacle, being the tent of meeting. In verse 2, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So if you're thinking of the tabernacle first, let's try to answer the question, what is the tabernacle? It literally means tent or tent of meeting. When the children of Israel got delivered out of Egypt and they're traveling through the wilderness, God instructed Moses to have this tent built with very specific instructions of all of the articles, the dimensions, and it was a pattern. It was a shadow of the reality in, in heaven. With the tabernacle, there was two courts. There was the holy place and the most holy place. 
And in the holy place, you have what's listed here in verse 2. You have the lampstand. And the lampstand was one stem with six branches. The only light was these seven golden lampstands in the tabernacle. So if you can think of the darkness of the wilderness, if you go out into the mountains and the stars and the moon is the only thing that lights up the sky. And in this tent, the only thing that would light it up was the lampstand. We know ultimately Jesus fulfilled this when he came and he declared, I'm the light of the world in John's gospel. For the Jewish reader, they're going back to the tabernacle. They're going back to this place, and they're recognizing that it pointed to Christ. The other, the the table and the showbread, ultimately pointed to Jesus as being the bread of life. The priest would place out the 12 loaves on the table of showbread. And Jesus comes and he says, I am the bread of life. And it would take them back to this place. So all of this in the tabernacle is pointing to Jesus. We see Jesus in the tabernacle. One of the things we've been talking about in Hebrews, we'll talk about it again next week in chapter 10. Jesus didn't come on the scene, Matthew 1.1. In the beginning was God. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus is God. And so we see Christ throughout the Old Testament. We see Christ in the tabernacle. Verse 3, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. So, so this is that second part of the tabernacle, which was the holy of holies. The tabernacle is 45 feet long, 15 feet high, and 15 feet wide. So not too big. 45 feet. So I I wear size 12 shoes, so 45 of these bad dogs, right? Okay, if we were just to count it out, one, two, three, 45 feet, uh, and then 15 feet high, not not terribly high. This is much, much higher, and then 15 feet wide. That's not, not, not terribly big, but inside of that, then you come to the holiest of all. In verse 14, it says, which the golden censer, and the Ark of the Covenant. So this is describing what's inside of the Holy of Holies. We have a golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold. So inside of the Ark of the Covenant, in which were the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the table of the covenant. So, so three things that were inside of the Ark of the Covenant. You had a golden pot, with some of the manna. They wanted to remember God's provision for them, the the bread that would come down every morning from the Lord. Then Aaron's rod that budded. There was a point where they were contesting Aaron's leadership as the priest. And so what Moses says is, we're going to take Aaron's rod, we're going to take the rod of this other leader, and whoever's Rod buds is the leader that's from the Lord. And and Aaron's rod, it budded. And so it was placed in the holiest of all. And then you have the tables of the covenant or the law that was given to Moses, the Ten Commandments that was given to Moses. Each of these point to our need for mercy, our need for Christ. When we see the manna that was given, Christ is the fulfillment of that. He is the bread from heaven. Aaron's rod that, that budded. Christ is the ultimate leader that we we long for. The law shows us our need for Christ. Now, there's a question that's come up. Where's the Ark of the Covenant? We don't know. Even Indiana Jones, he doesn't know, right? Everybody wants to find the Ark of the Covenant, but we haven't yet found it. The dimensions of the Ark are given to us. It was three and three quarters feet long, 
two and a quarter feet wide and two and a quarter feet high. So a really pretty small box that was laid in gold. In verse 5, and above it were the cherubim of glory. So above uh, the Ark of the Covenant were these cherubim, these, these angels that were carved of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of things we cannot now speak in detail. So the author of Hebrews, he just says, I'm giving you a quick description of, of the tabernacle, quick description of the holiest of all. One of the important things before we move on with the holiest of all is it was one day a year, one man could enter into the holiest of all. It was the day of atonement. And he would come and make sacrifice first for his sin and then for the sins of the nation of Israel. The blood was placed upon the mercy seat. And God forgave the sins of the children of Israel and met with them upon the mercy seat. And isn't that a beautiful picture of the gospel where Christ is slain for our sins, the ultimate sacrifice, his blood is poured out upon the mercy seat and God meets us at the mercy seat. The word propitiation that we see in the New Testament, in the Greek, it's rooted in this concept of the mercy seat. So all along, even in the old covenant, God met with his people in mercy. He met with them based upon the mercy seat. And as we get into the ministry of Jesus Christ, we find a far greater ministry because this is limited proximity. The Ark of the Covenant can only be at one place at one time. And then the holiest of all is only open to one man one day a year. So this is foreshadowing. It's pointing to the reality of heaven based on the sacrifice of Christ. We can access the throne of God anywhere in the world 24-7. And all who believe in Jesus are welcomed to the throne room of God. So it's far greater access than what we see in the Old Covenant. This is a really fun verse in verse 6. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. So would quite regularly go into the holy place, not the holy of holies, and would do the sacrifices, the trim, trim the wicks, refill the lamps with oil. But verse 7, but into the second part, the high priest went only once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So one day a year, the day of atonement, and he couldn't enter in to God's holy presence without the blood. This is pointing to the blood of Jesus. That without blood, there was no remission of sin. Why is blood such a big deal in the scriptures? Is God just gory? Is he into horror films? It's showing us the depth and the depravity of our sin. So here's this innocent animal that was killed because of sin. It's never fun to see an animal be killed, an innocent animal be killed. You know, you think of your pet that you love, and man, who, who wants to, to go through that? And as a kid growing up, you're going, Mom, Dad, why did this lamb have to die? You know, what did the lamb do wrong? Well, it, it showed how brutal our sin is, that, that there has to be blood shed in order for us to be forgiven. So the priest couldn't come in without blood, which he offered for himself. And that's what separates Christ, is Christ as he enters into the heavenly tabernacle, the throne of the Father, he didn't have to offer sacrifice for himself. He's the only sinless high priest. In verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this, 
that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So at this point, the way hasn't been made to come into God's presence, to to enter into the holiest of holies in heaven. In verse 9, it was symbolic for this present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So all of the gifts, all of the sacrifices, all of that was animals that were slain could not cleanse the conscience, couldn't make the conscience right before the Lord. So you have limited access, one man, one day a year, but you also have limited effectiveness because it doesn't release the conscience from sin. So here you have those living under the law, knowing that they failed, having the blood sacrifice that covered their sins, but never having their sins removed, are knowing that they have a clear conscience before the Lord. That's brutal, isn't it? That's difficult to, to walk around with the weight and the burden of sin and not having a clear conscience. In verse 10, concerning only with foods and drinks, various washing and fleshly ordinances opposed until the time of reformation. It dealt with the outward. Part of the law was the kosher diet of what you could and couldn't eat, what you could and couldn't drink. Lots of different washings, which the nation of Israel calls migfas, all of these baths and cleansings that they had to go through in order to be clean and to be right with God. But it was all on the outward, and it was imposed until the time of reformation. It was always intended to point to the new covenant and the reformation that God would bring. Now, if you're a little bit bored, maybe you've had a long day and you're like, man, I don't know that I came out on a Wednesday night to hear all this detail about the tabernacle. This is where it gets really fun because the earthly tabernacle points to the heaven reality. It, It points to what Jesus, our high priest, has done for us at the throne of the Father. Now, one of the things is we don't want to be ignorant when we get to heaven, right? I don't want you to get to heaven and see the throne room of God and go, I never heard about the lampstand. I never heard about the holiest of holies. I never heard about the table of showbread. And then Jesus is like, who's your pastor? Well, that, well, that guy Eric was my pastor and he never told me about it, right? I, I want you to get up there and get to the throne room of God and go, yeah, I, I remember reading about this in Hebrews 9, that this earthly was a pattern, a shadow of the heaven, heavenly reality. And it gets our imagination going of when we are going to be at the throne room of God. In verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of good things to come with greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So, so Jesus didn't come of the earthly tabernacle. He didn't come of the old covenant. He came of the new covenant and the heavenly reality, and to, to bring us into that place of dwelling with God. One of the things that we appreciate about God's heart is he always intended to dwell with us. Isn't that, isn't that cool? You know, we think of Adam and Eve in the cool of the day having a conversation with God, beholding God. When they sinned, they could no longer have that kind of fellowship with the Lord God giving the tabernacle to the children of Israel was saying, I want to dwell with you. I want my presence to be in the middle of your people. And the tabernacle was in the very center of their camp. But again, sin is separating them. So only one man can come 
one day a year. When Jesus came, John 1, verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, it means tabernacled. Jesus lived among us and tabernacled. He, he dwelt with us. God wanted fellowship with us to where when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, that we're promised to always have Christ's presence. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And then we'll enter into the fullness, the full expression of his presence when we go home to be with the Lord. And so Jesus came of this perfect tabernacle, this perfect dwelling place that's not a tent, but it's of heaven. It's of the throne room of God. In verse 12, it says, Not with the blood of goats and, and calves, but with his own blood, he entered into the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So if you're taking notes, Jesus provides an eternal redemption and inheritance. The key in these next few verses is eternal. So through his own blood, he enters into the throne room of God. We know there's a mercy seat there in the throne room of God because the earthly was a shadow of the heaven and placed his blood there upon the mercy seat so that we could be forgiven. So when the Father chooses to forgive, it's based upon the blood of Jesus. Saying, Eric, you trust in the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is enough. It's a just punishment for sin. So the Father then is able to extend forgiveness to us and provide once for all eternal redemption. There was no end to the Levitical system. There was no end to the animal sacrifice. But Christ died once and he provided redemption that's good for 2017? No, it, eternal. Eternal redemption. So what does redemption mean? It means to buy back. It literally means to, to purchase back. So we were sold because of our sin. And Jesus bought us back. He redeemed us. And in a sense, he, he purchased us twice. We belong to him because he created us. And we belong to him because he redeemed us with his blood. And that price is so great and so valuable, the blood of Jesus, that in God's economy, it's good for eternity. It's eternal. We have eternal redemption. So the moment you receive Christ as your Savior and you trust Christ, he's like, you're eternally redeemed. I've paid that price, and it's good to last for all of eternity. And I know that this is basic, but it's also mind-blowing, isn't it, to think about eternity. And we talk about it quite a bit as Christians, but can you grasp forever with God, right? The only thing that we know is time, a beginning and an end, and the closing of time, and the beginning of time. But in heaven, it, it's forever. And to know that I'm forgiven forever, that I'm the child of God forever, that, that's something the old tabernacle couldn't do. It's something that the old system couldn't do, couldn't provide eternal redemption, but Christ in his blood has provided eternal redemption. What a gift that God has, has granted to us. In verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So point number two, Jesus cleanses our conscience. So if blood and, and the blood of goats 
and bulls and heifers, if it had some impact, how much more so the blood of Jesus Christ to do what the law could never do and to cleanse our conscience. This is a tremendous gift that Jesus gives to us. There's something that's incredible to go to the Lord to confess sin and to know that you're forgiven and to have him cleanse your conscience and lift that weight of sin. There's nothing like it, right? There's nothing that can compare to that. And a lot of times, apart from Christ, we're really looking to have the weight of our conscience lifted. You know, I feel this guilt and remorse because of my sin, so some would say, I'm just going to drown it with alcohol. And, and somehow that that's going to make me not feel the guilt of my, my conscience. Well, maybe while you're hungover, but eventually the hangover passes and then the regrets even more. Or going to drugs and saying, man, I, I've got to have this, you know? So here I am get, getting drugs and I'm filling myself with, with these drugs just simply because my conscience is driving me crazy. Some people going from one relationship to the next, one sexual sin to the next, just to try to relieve their conscience. And there's only one thing that can relieve your conscience, and that's Christ. And that's the blood of Jesus. To trust him and go, it's Christ's blood that cleanses my conscience. And I don't think we ever grow out of needing Christ to clear our conscience. Because we're always providing fresh material, aren't we? You know, So it's okay, Lord, he, here's my conscience, here's my sin, and I confess and repent and to really allow the Lord to wash us and, and to cleanse us. To be in that place where the burden is lifted. A great book, if you've never read it, it's Pilgrim's Progress. It's, it's fiction, but it's an allegory of the Christian life. And you have this, this man carrying this burden of sin, this big, huge backpack, and it's weighting him down until he lays it at the foot of the cross. And it very beautifully describes the freedom that's found when we trust Christ for forgiveness, where he's lifted that burden to know that I'm forgiven. You know, are, are you in that place of knowing that Christ's sacrifice upon the cross is enough to cleanse your conscience? You know, what are you, what are you running to? What are you looking to, to allow your conscience to be cleansed? It's Christ that does it. And when he cleanses our conscience from, from dead works, from trying to please God through our own works. You know, some people might not go to drugs. They might not go to alcohol. They might go to good works and say, oh, I'm going to be a good person. And, and by being a good person, then God will be pleased with me. And when can you really do enough for God to be pleased? When can you do enough for your conscience to be, to be cleansed? And when we get lifted from all that, what do we get to do? We get to serve the living God. So the blood of Jesus Christ washing away our sin, cleansing our conscience, brings us to this place where we're saying, God, I want to I serve you. I, I want to give my life to you. I want to walk in, in obedience to you in a way that's far deeper and far greater than the law ever could. In verse 15, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. Mediator is, is bringing together fractured parties. So we're, we're fractured with the Father until we trust Christ, and then he reconciles us with his blood. He brings us into the new covenant, the new contract with God. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. What's the purpose of the first covenant? To show us we're sinners, to show us our need for Christ, to show us our need for grace. So that first covenant causes us to see our need for redemption. 
that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. This is bringing us back to point number one, that Jesus provides eternal redemption and eternal inheritance. This is how good the gospel is, how good the blood of Jesus Christ is, that we become the children of God, that we become joint heirs with Christ. Man, it'd be more than enough for him to forgive us and to cleanse us from our conscience, to have eternal redemption, but inheritance, bringing us into inheritance. And again, the heart of inheritance is relationship. Who do you give inheritance to? Your children, your grandchildren, those that belong to you. Sometimes if people don't have kids, they leave their inheritance to their nieces and nephews. You know, it, it shows relationship. It shows someone that, that you, you value. And so God giving us inheritance, yeah, it's amazing the gifts that he gives to us, but it shows relationship. It shows that you are the full-blown son or daughter of God, that you've been adopted by the Lord. And it's eternal. It's an eternal inheritance that God has given to us. Never ends. What an amazing gift that God gives. I don't know how things are going for you economically, you know, how maybe your retirement plan is or isn't here on this earth, but your heavenly 401k just keeps getting better and better and better and better, right? So no, no matter what happens in this life with inheritance or lack thereof or retirement or lack thereof, you've been granted eternal inheritance through the blood of Jesus. And as we read this, these are all gifts of grace that God gives to us the moment we're saved. You know, how redeemed are you when you trust Christ for salvation? 80%? 100% redeemed. How much inheritance do you have the moment that you receive Christ as your Savior? 50%? 25%? Well, if you read your Bible, it goes up a little bit. It's the full inheritance. You're, you're a full child. You're a full joint heir of Christ. And we get to serve out of that acceptance. We get to serve out of that free gift that God has, has granted to us. In Romans 8, verse 18, it says this, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We have to look at our temporary suffering in light of the eternal glory of the inheritance of the sons and daughters of God. To be able to go, wow. Now, my present suffering, I, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The Apostle Paul went through a lot of suffering in his life. One of the things that he learned was to see his suffering through the light of eternity, that he would receive this inheritance from the Lord. In verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be death of the tester. This word testament is also translated covenant or will. So the idea is in order for you to be brought into a new covenant or a will, there has to be the death of the tester. So for, for instance, for our kids to enter into the will that Amber and I have to be written, that's written up, we have to die first. That, that's when the will uh, then takes place. That's when the covenant is entered into. In verse 17, for a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the tester lives. So point number three is Jesus brings us into the new covenant. His death brings us into the new covenant of grace. He, he in his death and resurrection, has presented us faultless at the throne room of God. 
lines up what Jesus said at introducing communion at the Last Supper. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant. I'm going to die to bring in this new contract of grace that you have with the Lord. So how, how sure do you think this covenant is? Pretty darn sure. Because it's based on what? It's based on the death of Jesus Christ. It's sealed in his blood. Also, we see necessity. That In verse 16, it says, there must also of necessity be death of the tester. There was the need for Christ to die because of our sin. Verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So even under the old covenant, there was blood that was involved. It was the blood of animals. In verse 19, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and the people. So when he's reading the old covenant and bringing, reading the law and saying, do you agree to this? They say yes, and he kills the animal, the calves, and the goat, and he sprinkles it on the law that he's reading it and sprinkles it on the people. <laughs> That's intense, you know? That, it's like, how committed are you to the word of God? Get the lamb. Spill the blood of the lamb on your Bible and then pour it on your forehead and you mean it, right? It's like, that's, kinda, that's, that's intense. We won't be doing that here. Why? Be- because Christ shed his blood, right? But it shows us that the weight of these covenants and how serious they were and what a gift it is that Christ died, died for us. Verse 20, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God had commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry. So it wasn't just the Bible and the people, the law and the people, but all of the articles that were in the tabernacle were sprinkled with blood as well. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no removal of sin. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I will give it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Uh, remission is forgiveness, parting, pardoning, to release, to, to let go. And so the animal sacrifice could cover sin, but it couldn't remove sin. Only Christ could remove sin. In verse 23, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things and the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the tabernacle is an earthly shadow of the heavenly reality. So there's going to be the shedding of blood in the heavenly reality, but it's going to be the blood of Jesus, not the blood of the lambs. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with, with hands, which are copies of the true, but into the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So Jesus didn't go to the tabernacle and say, here, my blood is shed. He goes to the throne room, to the Father, to the Holy of Holies, and says, here's my blood that was shed for them. I think we all struggle with believing that God forgives us and really allowing him to cleanse our conscience. And hopefully what this is doing is it's adding to you the value of the blood of Jesus 
of what really happened when he died for us and the depth of forgiveness. It's completely based in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's, it's not based upon me. And it's sealed by Christ shedding his blood for us and making that sacrifice for us in heavenly places. In verse 25, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. So Christ's sacrifice for sin was once and for all. He died, it is finished, resurrected, ascended before the Father, presented us faultless, and Christ is not perpetually being crucified. Does that make sense? It's not like every time we sin, Christ has to re-die upon the cross. His sacrifice was enough to provide forgiveness for all sin, for all of eternity, for whoever would believe. Because there is this understanding in this teaching about Christ that, that he is continually upon the cross, or he's continually to be crucified in eternity. And it's really clear in Hebrews, no, it's not like that. It's not like it was under the Old Covenant, where every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to go in. It was once and for all. And I think to not understand that is to diminish the work of Christ, to take away from the fact that it is completed for us. In verse 26, he then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So if it were according to the Old Covenant, he'd have to be sacrificed often from the foundation of the world. But it's saying, but now, in contrast to that, at the end of the ages, he appeared once and he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So point four is Jesus put away sin for good. His sacrifice puts away sin for good. Sin has been done away with. So church, why are we trying to dig up sin that he's forgiven in our lives and in the lives of others. You're forgiven. Christ's blood provides the remission of sin. He, he put it away. So when the Father looks at us, he has released our sin. He's, he's let it go, saying, I'm not holding it against you. You're justified. You're declared righteous because of the blood of Christ. So why do we forgive others? Because of the sacrifice of Christ. It's not whether they deserve it, are they apologized according to the way that you'd like it? You know, okay, you finally articulated it to me in a way that I know you're serious. Now you forgive because of the sacrifice that Christ made. Christ, as he's being crucified, looked to those who were crucifying and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, it, it's forgiving unbelievers. It's forgiving believers. If it's a believer, it, Christ has paid for it. If it's an unbeliever, our hope is that they would come to know the gospel and Christ has died for it. It's just a matter of them receiving it and walking in it. And forgiveness is just as much for you as it is for them. Because if you don't choose to extend that forgiveness to them, bitterness begins to destroy us. And Jesus made it really clear if I can enjoy forgiveness in my life, I am held responsible by the Lord to give it to somebody else. In God's economy, in his understanding, he's going, Eric, I've forgiven you of all of this, and you can't forgive of this? 
And whoever I have to forgive, it's going to be far less than all the things that God is having to forgive me. And it's based on the blood of Jesus. So Hebrews 4, the end of the chapter, it says, Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So why did the Father forgive you? Because you're cute? Because you've done this? Because you've done that? Because you asked in the nice way? He forgave because of Christ. He, be, he forgave because Jesus is the high priest. He's the perfect sacrifice, without spot, without blemish. Jesus presented himself at the throne room of the Father. And so the Father says, everyone who believes in Christ and Christ's sacrifice, I extend forgiveness. I not only extend forgiveness, but I give eternal redemption through my eternal spirit for eternal inheritance. You're, you're a full son. You're a full daughter. You're a joint, joint heir with Christ. And as we enjoy that, then we extend that. We go, okay, I'm going to choose to be kind. I'm going to choose to be tenderhearted. I'm going to choose to forgive because of Christ's sacrifice. That's the center of forgiveness that we enjoy and the forgiveness that we share. So take a deep breath in the midst of this study and go, oh man, if I trust Christ, I'm forgiven. Holy Spirit, help me to receive that, believe that, I'm forgiven. Okay, I'm forgiven. Now, I must forgive. Is there somebody that you're holding a grudge against? Is there somebody that you're bitter against? Is there somebody right now that you're just saying, no, I won't do it. Sorry, sorry, Charlie, not gonna do it. Take a deep breath. God's forgiven you. Choose to forgive them based on what Christ has done, not on your feelings or whether they deserve it. We look at verse 27, and it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. No reincarnation. Once you're dead, this life's done. Pretty clear. Appointed once for man to die, and then after that, judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. He died once. He's not perpetually being crucified. How do we know that we're going to stand forgiven before God when we face him? Based on our faith in Christ. That's what's going to determine whether we're saved or we're unsaved. Here's our response to all of this goodness that Christ has given to us. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. So our response to the goodness of Christ as our high priest is, Jesus, I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for your return. I'm waiting for you to set things right. I'm looking forward to when either I go home to be with the Lord or you come back to rule and reign. The end of verse 28, uh, when he says, apart from sin, what's being indicated? The first coming of Christ was for the purpose of dealing with sin. But the second time, his second coming, is not going to be for dealing for sin. It's for salvation. It's for his judgment. It's for him to rule and reign. Christ in his first coming came as the lamb, crucified. In his second coming, he comes as the lion to rule and to reign. So the earthly tabernacle is limited access with limited efficiency. Why would anybody want to go back to that? The heavenly throne is unlimited access with perfect sacrifice. Right now, tonight, you can come into the throne room of God because of the blood of Jesus. Not because you had a good day or a bad day. Not because you deserve it or you don't, because of the sacrifice of Christ. And Christ is that perfect sacrifice. 
The old covenant, repeated sacrifices. The new covenant, one sacrifice. Old covenant, blood of others, blood of animals. The new covenant, his own blood. Old covenant's covering sin. The new covenant is putting away sin for good. The old covenant was for Israel. The new covenant is for all sinners. The old covenant left the Holy of Holies. The new covenant entered heaven and remains there. The old covenant was centered on one location. The old covenant came out to bless the people. The new covenant will come to take his people to heaven. So what's our response? What did the text tell us to how to respond to God's goodness that's granted to us? Serve him. Serve him. Because you get to. Where else are you going to go? He alone has the words of life. He alone can provide the forgiveness of sins. He is the bread of life. He's the light of the world. We get to serve him. Not that we have to. We get to. We want to. We go, wow, you cleanse my conscience from sin. I want to serve you. And then to eagerly wait for his return. Eagerly wait for his return. I hope tonight that you're just stoked about Jesus. I hope through this simple Bible study of reading through Hebrews 9, you go, Jesus, you are amazing. Thank you so much for your sacrifice for my sin. Thank you that I'm forgiven. Thank you that I can extend forgiveness to others. The forgiveness that we have received is radical. And the forgiveness we get to extend to others as radical as well. So let's enter into communion tonight and allow God to minister to our hearts. Let's pray. Jesus, we do pray that you would use your word in our lives right now, that we would see to a greater degree the value of your blood, that, Father, you didn't spare your own son, that, Jesus, you willingly laid down your life for us, that we are redeemed eternally, completely, that we have an eternal inheritance, that your sacrifice cleanses our conscience from dead works so that we can serve you. And as we take communion, may it be a special time, a neat time of meeting with you, and would you cleanse our conscience. We know the gospel is about fresh starts and new beginnings, and may we receive that from you tonight, and may we extend that to others. Would you bless this time of worship in Jesus' name?